Our Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 35, verse 1 to 29. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I'll build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the yoke at Sheshem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed to him that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the yoke outside Bethel, so it was named Alon Bakuth. After, ja after Jacob returned from Padamaran, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then Rachel moved on from Bethel, while they were still some, while they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, "Don't despair, for you for you have another son." As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on their way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Edah. While Israel was lying in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant, Zilpha, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padaram. Jacob came home to his father, Isaac, in Mamre, near Kiriath Abba, that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Thank you very much, Anita. If you've got your Bibles open or apps open, please keep them open. We're going to be referring to this passage throughout. Now, one of the most 
best-selling Christian books of all time is Pilgrim's Progress. Can you put your hand up if you've heard of Pilgrim's Progress? I want to gauge the room. Okay, yeah, a lot of us have. So Pilgrim's Progress was written in 1678 by John Bunyan, um, and it's an allegory an allegory of the Christian life, which means it it kind of depicts what it means to follow Jesus, but using pictures and metaphors, and it works through this general um, imagery of a journey. So it follows a man called Christian. Do you see what they did there? They called him Christian. And he goes from the city of destruction on his way, on his travels to the celestial city. And he has various ups and downs along the way. He goes through various places, One is called the Valley of Humiliation, Doubting Castle, Vanity Fair, from which we get the name of the magazine. In short, it it depicts the Christian life in all its ups and its downs as a journey. It's a journey. And it's popular for us even today to think of our Christian lives as a journey. We talk about our Christian journey, our spiritual journey, our faith journey. And it's not just Christians, we see that a lot in the world, people talk about their, their journey, their journey to self-fulfillment, their journey of um, finding out who they are, journey of self-discovery. And this word, journey, is evocative. It's more than just travel. You don't journey to the corner shop, do you? Unless there was kind of apocalyptic frost the night before, and it's really slippy. The word journey implies a few things. First of all, that it's long. It's long and it requires endurance. It will take a while to get to your destination. Secondly, it implies that there will be challenges along the way, ups and downs. But that there is somewhere that we are heading. There is a destination. And we've been looking at the life of Jacob over the last few months in Genesis. This is our final sermon in Jacob's life today. And Jacob's life has been a journey in multiple senses of the term. It's a there and back again story, actually. The story of Jacob begins where he is at home with his family. He ends up fleeing from his family under the threat of death from his brother Esau, and he flees hundreds of miles to his uncle's house um, in a place called Haran on foot, And now he is returning back home to where his father lives. And this chapter traces that final leg of the journey. Today, Jacob comes back. He comes home. And this wraps up the Jacob story in Genesis. And over the years of his journey, we have seen in our sermon series how Jacob has changed. He's not the man coming back that he was when he left. He's grown older, but also wiser, godlier, He also has a huge family that he's coming back with. And as we look at this final part of Jacob's story, we're going to learn a lot about our Christian journey as well, our spiritual journey. It may feel like life is a bit of a hard road at the moment. It may feel long. You may feel like spiritually you've kind of gone off track. I don't know. But Jacob's story helps us. It it will give us strength for whatever we're facing in our Christian lives but also it will teach us how to travel well on this journey as Christians. So let's look at it together. Well, the first point, the Lord graciously calls us. The Lord graciously calls us. 
Now, before we get into this chapter, I need to give a bit of a recap because we haven't gone through the previous chapter, chapter 34. So let me just cover that briefly. It's a bit of an ugly story, to be honest. Last week, we heard about how Jacob and Esau reconciled. It was this beautiful picture of conflict dealt with and people come to, coming together. But after, after that, Jacob stays in the land of Shechem. Now, in Shechem, there is also a prince, confusingly, called Shechem. So Shechem is the prince of Shechem. And this prince, Shechem, falls in love, as it were, with Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and he is infatuated with her. And because of the power he has and because of his insatiable urges, he ends up violating Dinah. He rapes her, and it's tragic. But he also wants to marry her. And so Shechem's family tried to arrange an tried to create an arrangement with Jacob's family, and Jacob has become a clan at this point, and diplomatic relations are important. So they tried to make an arrangement so a marriage can happen, despite what's occurred. And Jacob comes across not well in the passage, really. He's quite passive. You kind of get the sense that, you know, his, his, his daughter has been abused, and he doesn't seem to do that much about it or care that much. But two of his sons, Simeon and Levi, they care almost a bit too much. They're enraged, so enraged that they are filled with vengeance. And so they launch a plan. It's sneaky. Simeon and Levi, they kind of head up the diplomatic relations with Shechem. And they say, Shechem, you can marry Dinah, but only if you and your entire city, all the men in it, become circumcised. And Shechem agrees. And so all the men get circumcised. And whilst they are weak and sore and recovering from a delicate operation, Simeon and Levi go into the city and they slaughter all the men in the city. They plunder it. They even take their families as plunder, the women and children. It is unbelievably disproportionate. Awful. It's also pretty stupid. Because when others hear of what Jacob's family has done, they're going to want to take their own vengeance. And so Jacob and his family now have the threat of other peoples coming to attack them as well. It's an absolute mess. And it's in that context that this chapter begins. And it begins with the Lord's word to Jacob. Look down with me, verse 1. Go up to Bethel and settle there. And build an altar to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Go to Bethel, God tells Jacob. Now, Bethel, you may remember, is the place where God, um, God met with Jacob. Jacob had this remarkable experience of God. He has a, he, God gives him a vision of angels descending and ascending. God speaks to Jacob. He gives him promises, amazing promises. But he also says, Jacob, I am going to be with you wherever you go. And Jacob had been awestruck, and he made a vow. Chapter 28, he says, if God will be with me, if he looks after me and one day brings me back home in peace, then this place, Bethel, will be God's house. That's what Jacob said. And in the years since, that was maybe 20, 30 years ago, The Lord had been with Jacob. He had protected him. He brought him through many things. And Jacob says this himself. Look in verse 3. The Lord has been with me wherever I have gone. 
And now he has returned back home from his exile, but he hasn't gone to Bethel. He hasn't gone to fulfill his vow, and that's lacking. He needs to go. So we've got a number of problems in Jacob's family at this point. One, Jacob has delayed in fulfilling his vow. You could say on his spiritual journey, he's gone off track. And now his daughter has been abused. His sons have committed an evil crime themselves. And because of that, his entire family is in danger. It's a mess. And there's sins just so present in the whole family. What is going to happen? Well, what happens is the Lord graciously calls Jacob and his family back. He calls Jacob back to fulfill the vow that he had made. He doesn't discard Jacob for going astray. He doesn't drop the family for all their sins, as grievous as they are. He offers a second chance. For God to call Jacob back to Bethel is as if he's saying, look, Jacob, you said you'd come back. Come back. I'm still here. I still want to bless you. I still want to serve your family. Our relationship is still there. But come back. And so Jacob obeys. Come, let us go up to Bethel, he says, verse 3. And they head as a family there. And it's risky. It's risky because the people around could pick them off as they're journeying over to Bethel. And if they did, they'd kind of deserve it, one could fairly say. And yet God protects them. It says, verse 5, that he causes a great fear, a terror to come on the surrounding peoples, which means that they leave Jacob and his family alone and are able to journey safely. It's remarkable protection. And they get to Bethel, verse 6 and 7. Jacob builds an altar, and the Lord blesses him again with things that he's already said before, but nevertheless, he restates his blessing, he restates his promises. He confirms that Jacob's name will be Israel, his new identity. And from here on in, in the, in the passage, you see, or later on, that Jacob is started to be called Israel. And then God restates the promises that he'd given to Jacob and to his fathers beforehand, to Abraham and Isaac. I am, the, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I give to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. God is gracious. He's not tearing up his plans and his agreement and his commitment to Jacob and his family. He's restating it. He's maintaining it, despite all that's happened. It's amazing. And this is how the Lord deals with his people. Even those who are wayward, he's gracious. He shows grace. A few years ago, I did a summer camp, and... um, I was leading a bunch of student-aged lads, all Christians and all good friends, but one night a bit of banter kind of got out of hand. So it was late, they'd stayed up late, and one of the lads had gone to sleep, and his mates decided it would be really funny if they shaved a bit of his eyebrow off. Uh, So they did this while he was asleep, ha ha ha, hilarious, and then he kind of wakes up and it turns out it wasn't a great idea, um, because he was really upset, he felt violated, I think rightly so. And I think the guys who'd done it, they didn't really understand how serious it was until they saw the reaction of their friend, which was fair. It was really stupid. 
Anyway, the next morning, we were all on breakfast duty, trying to kind of organize things for the camp and get stuff ready. And there was just this weird mood. All the guys seemed a bit sheepish. There wasn't the normal chat that you would expect. It was just a kind of weird air. Distance among the guys there. Now, they were able to reconcile, which is great. But that kind of mood in the room before they did, it makes sense, doesn't it? Graham Bynan, who's a pastor in Cambridge, he makes this point. You know, when you realized you've hurt someone, when you realized you've let them down, you kind of think, what happens now? It feels a bit weird, doesn't it? Like, how am I supposed to relate to this person? What? Where am I with them? And we can feel that way with God. We can sense distance in our relationship to him. We let him down for committing the same sin we've done before, or perhaps we've really screwed things up in a, in a, in a new, fresh way. And we kind of think, well, what happens now? Where am I with God? Because what I've done is serious. Well, what Jacob experienced is that God is gracious. He takes the initiative. He calls us back. I do wonder how many in this room may feel like they have wandered off course on their spiritual journey. Are you aware of matters in your heart and life which need to be attended to, serious things that have put distance in your experience of your relationship with God? Have you screwed up? What's it like being at church this morning? Does it feel like a formality? Have you been able to sing the songs that we've sang this morning with heart and authenticity? Or have you distanced yourself from God? The Lord Jesus says, just as God says to Jacob, come back. You can come back. My promises are still available for you. My grace is here for you. I think we, we estimate, we un- overestimate, or underestimate rather, how willing Jesus is to have us back when we've sinned. Now, he is not put off by our sins. He has paid for, it, paid for our, our sins with his blood. He welcomes us back. He calls us back. We can have a fresh start. And so if you need one, maybe today's a good day. Jesus himself, you know, in Matthew 23, he describes himself as a hen trying to gather his chicks. And he says that to a group of Pharisees who are just way off the mark spiritually. They've majorly messed up. And yet he will say, come back. That's what he does to us. God graciously calls us back. Secondly, the Lord graciously guides us. He guides us. Now, Jacob's story, his journey, has been, up until this point, full of suffering in one way or another. And there's still sufferings in this chapter. It's punctuated with them. There isn't one suffering that kind of dominates the whole story, but rather they're kind of like speed bumps. There's one and then another and then another. They affect the whole journey. So there are three bereavements in the passage. Isaac, who's Jacob's father, he dies. He dies at an old age. It's probably expected in some ways. But there are other deaths. Verse 8, Deborah dies. 
Deborah was the nurse of Jacob's mother, Rebekah. And we have, no, we have nothing to tell us that Jacob has actually seen Rebekah, his own mother, since he left 20 or 30 years ago. So if Deborah dies, she may be his last connection with his mother. And then she's gone. And you can tell that her death has, has a massive impact. They name the tree where they bury her, Alun Bakuth, Oak of Weeping. But only, not only does Deborah die, Rachel dies as well. Rachel, who Jacob loves so much. Look at verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. In verse 19, so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Now, we know how much Jacob loved Rachel. He was willing to work 14 years in order to be her husband, and then she's taken away prematurely. It wasn't uncommon for women to die in childbirth back then, but nevertheless, it would have been crushing, surely, for Jacob. So he has to deal with all this death that's happening on his journey. But, it, but his suffering doesn't end there. It's not just because of death. It's also because of sin. People sin against him, particularly his son, Reuben. Look at verse 21. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Now, the passage doesn't give us much detail about the motivations of Reuben, but we can guess. And we can guess that it's not so much about lust as it is about power. So to sleep with your father's servant is a power move. We see this later in the Bible with King David when his son Absalom is trying to launch a coup against his father. He sleeps with his concubines. And so this here could be an attempt by Reuben to try and usurp his father to try to assert authority over the family. Whatever it is, it's despicable. And it actually cancels Reuben out of the firstborn status in the family. And it passes down eventually to Judah. So Jacob, he's on this journey home. And he's dealing with so many different types of suffering. And it's just one speed bump after another. One hard thing after another. And yet... The Lord guides him through. The suffering is not the end of the story for Jacob. And Jacob receives blessing even though he has to experience these hardships. So though Rachel dies, Benjamin is born. And Benjamin is the kind of final son of his 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes. We see that in verse 23 to 26. Just the beginnings of God's promise being fulfilled to Jacob that he would have multiple descendants. And eventually, after hitting many speed bumps along the way, Jacob comes home. Do you see that? He, and notice how, he, how it ends at the end. He comes home to his father who is still alive, and he sees him before he dies. And after he dies, Jacob buries him with his brother Esau. This is so significant. You know, God had said at Bethel the first time that Jacob would return to his, fa- fa- to his family, to his home, safely. And God has done that. He's brought Jacob home. 
The reason Jacob had fled in the first place was because of a conflict with his brother. His brother said that when his father would die, he would kill him. And here they are. The father has died. And yet Jacob and Esau are together, able to bury him and grieve him as a family. In peace. And so despite all the troubles on the journey, the Lord had brought Jacob home. Again, he was right in verse 3. The Lord had been with him wherever he had gone. And though the road was hard at times, Jacob had never been forsaken. And this is true for every believer in the Lord Jesus. The Lord will guide us through our sufferings. On our spiritual journey, he will keep us. He'll guide us. We go through all sorts of sorrows, don't we? Some of them we can anticipate. We can see them coming. Others just seem to hit us out of nowhere and we're not ready for them. We didn't ask for them. They feel like intruders in our life, stealing us, stealing our joy from us. And like Jacob's, our journey will be hit by speed bumps. We will face various sorrows. But for a Christian, such sorrows do not have the final word. They may be the chapter headings in our story, but they will not be the conclusion. They won't be the epilogue. The Lord will guide us through them. Why? We have a Savior who's walking with us, and he is going to one day bring us home. You know, we experience all sorts of God's Kindness in this life is, is, good, is good gifts to us. But we still anticipate, don't we, that final destination, the celestial city, home, the place where after all our wanderings we'll be able to finally take off our walking boots, hang up our coats, and rest with the Lord Jesus forever. And Jesus is with us every step of the way as we travel we will be brought home to that perfected world. And knowing this changes our outlook on life, and it changes our outlook on our sufferings. There's a, a funny story told about the reformer Martin Luther, and particularly his wife, Kate. And uh, there's this great story about Luther feeling particularly low and down in the dumps, maybe a bit self-pitying, we don't know. And his wife, Kate, is trying to console him and give him you know, counsel and, and, and trying to pick him up. But he's not having any of it. He's just really low. And so Kate decides to go and put on a black dress. And Luther like, sees her in this dress. And he says, are you going to a funeral? And Kate says, no. But since you act like God is dead, I thought I'd join you in your mourning. Apparently, Luther got the message and recovered. Now, I don't recommend that as a first line of pastoral support for someone who's feeling low, just, just so you know. Um, and as we've said before, Christians are free to grieve their sorrows. It's okay for Christians not to be happy all the time. But we do not grieve without hope. We do not grieve as if the Lord God is dead. He's not dead. We do not believe in a dead Christ who died for our sins and then did not rise up again on the third day. He is alive and he is guiding us through life, whatever our sorrows. 
And so we have an unshakable hope. One of my favorite um, hymns is called The Christian's Hope Can Never Fail. Hannah and I had it um, performed at our wedding by a friend who recorded it, and um, we were able to watch the video of it. I just thought I'd I'd read uh, three verses which I think encapsulate the hope we have. We travel through a barren land with dangers thick on every hand, but Jesus guides us through the veil. Oh, the Christian's hope can never fail. Huge sorrows meet us as we go, and devils aim to overthrow. But vile infernals can't prevail. Oh, the Christian's hope shall never fail. Sometimes we're tempted to despair, but Jesus makes us then his care. Though numerous foes our souls assail, that is, enemies attack our souls, oh, the Christian's hope can never fail. It's good, isn't it? Do recommend it. Red Mountain Music, by the way, if you're interested, write that down, go and listen later. It's a great song. We don't know what will face us in the future, do we? We, we can't fathom it. And, and it's probably gracious that the Lord doesn't tell us, because if we did, we'd probably lose heart. But nevertheless, whatever we face, the Lord will be with us. He guides us through the veil. That's his promise to all those who trust in him. And he will bring us home. So the Lord graciously guides us. Finally then, what should our response be? Rededication. We rededicate ourselves. Just look at how God's grace affects Jacob. In verse 1, God calls Jacob to Bethel, and it says, verse 2, So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Jacob and his household respond to God's grace by rededicating themselves. Now we're told that for whatever reason they had foreign gods, little idols in their possession. We don't know why. Maybe it was because of the plunder from Shechem. Either way, Jacob gets rid of them. He gathers them as well as the earrings, which I guess we don't know why. There was a particular issue with the earrings. I suppose they were linked with with the, um, the idol worship in some way. But he takes all of them and he buries them. Under this, by this tree, and then verse 5, they set out, so they leave them behind. Buried in the ground, and they're gone. They're in the past. And for Jacob, this is appropriate. If you're going to worship the God of grace, the God who calls you, even despite your sins, the right response is to get rid of the foreign idols and to worship him. That's what he, that's what he says. That's, that's what he believes. You see, God's grace leads to change. It's not that we're paying God back, but there's something amazing about that grace that God shows us that means we come to our senses and we want to follow him purely. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? uh, Jacob has said that God has followed him wherever he has gone. 
But it's not just in life that the Lord follows us. We are called also to follow the Lord. We are called to follow Jesus. You know, there is a way to distort what we've said so far about how God is with us in the Christian life. You know, sometimes we, we can be tempted to think that, that Jesus is... Our Christian lives are, are kind of walked around with Jesus in our pocket. I put him in my pocket. He's there wherever I go. And I can live my life according to how I wish, basically pursue whatever dreams I have without thinking really about whether they align with Jesus' values or how they impact others, how they impact the Christian community. I can follow whatever ambitions I have, but Jesus is with me. And if I ever feel sad or if I ever feel anxious, then I can be comforted because God is there. And when things get really hard, I might even pray to him. And then again, I can feel comfort that God hears and is with me. Now, there is truth to a lot of that. Jesus is with us. He is a refuge in times of trouble. Of course he is. But he is more than that. He deserves more than that. And he wants more than that for us. He wants something better than for us to treat him like a lucky charm. We're made for more. And so his grace is there to change us. He calls us back, but then we are transformed. You know, some acts of grace are so powerful that they don't just amaze us, they transform us. And you see this in great works of literature, in films. Just think about Les Mis, Les Miserables, one of the greatest literary works we have. The story of Jean Valjean, a convict freshly released from prison. He can't find anywhere to stay on his release because he's been um, a convict, but he's taken in by a kindly bishop. But out of bad habits, he steals the silverware of the bishop and he runs away. But then he's caught by the police. He's arrested. And he tells the police this kind of ridiculous story that, you know, the bishop had given him the silverware as a gift. And so the police take Jean Valjean and the silverware back to the priest to see if the story is true. But shockingly, the priest has mercy on Jean Valjean. And he goes along with the story. He says, yes, this, 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 is, um, this stuff was a gift. I did give it to Jean Valjean. Oh, by the way, you missed two candlesticks. You have those as well. And the police are kind of confused but they have no choice but to drop the charges. And Jean Valjean goes free. And, he, and he's just left to, to ponder, to deal with this extraordinary act of grace that this bishop has given him. But he doesn't, he's not just amazed by it, it changes him. It leads to a, a series of events where he learns to extend mercy to other people, just as he has been extended mercy. And in the same way, God's grace will change us if we grasp it. So how should we be changed? What should we do? Well, it begins by burying our false gods, just like Jacob, and rededicating ourselves to Jesus, even if it's for the hundredth time. What does this mean? Well, think think of a God as something that has the steering wheel of your life. 
something that you sacrifice to, your time, your energy, your money? What is it that you're most afraid of losing or most afraid of not gaining? Those sorts of diagnostic questions might help you to see what gods there are in your life. Common ones are money, approval, relationships, career, achievement. Another good question, what are you addicted to? Some people are addicted to Netflix. Other people are addicted to their work. Whatever it is, we need to find those foreign gods and work to bury them. And that doesn't necessarily mean getting rid altogether of those things. But it does mean removing it from your, from your heart and prizing open the fingers if you're grasping it too tightly. We have to come to God in repentance. We have to say sorry. We have to acknowledge that we've been running after idols. We ask his help and we say Lord Jesus, please be the controlling factor in my life more than these things. We need to take practical steps. We need to enlist the, friend, the help of friends, Christian friends. But as we turn from idols to the living God, as we learn increasingly to put Jesus more on the throne rather than let these things be on the throne of our hearts, we will grow. We will be more like the person Jesus has called us to be. Maybe you feel like God is speaking to you this morning. Perhaps you knew when you came in that you were going astray, or perhaps it's just dawned on you. Well, the good news is, as we said at the beginning, the Lord Jesus still offers his grace. He calls you back to him. He's willing to give you a fresh start, whatever you've done, if you'll just come. And he has the intention, not just of forgiving you, but of transforming you. And he promises to be with us on our journey, guide us through all those sufferings, and bring us home. So if we need to come to him, let's do so today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, your grace to us in the Lord Jesus is astounding. We would never show the same amount of grace to others as you have done to us. And though we often go astray, leave the journey that you've called us to, nevertheless, you call us back. And Lord, we often don't grasp how willing you are to have us back. We don't believe that you can forgive us. We don't believe you want to, and yet you do. And Lord, may we, like little chicks, come to, the, come to the mother hen to be gathered in by the Lord Jesus, receive his grace. And Lord, for those of us who are struggling at the moment with hardships in our lives, speed bumps that feel like they will not end, Lord, please give us a special sense of your presence and guidance today. Equip us, Lord, to keep walking that journey. Give us hope, Lord, that can never fail as Christians. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.